If you take that feeling and you multiply it about 20 times, then maybe you get somewhere near what Isaac must have felt like after he buried his dad. Because God had made these promises to Abraham, but they weren't just promises to Abraham, right? They were promises to Abraham that he would use the offspring of Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations. And now the torch had been handed to Isaac. And not only does he have the responsibility of all of these people that are part of the clan, the family, the servants, the employees, all of those people that travel with them wherever they go, every one of them now looking to him as the boss. Not only did he have the pressure of that, but he had the pressure of knowing that everybody else knew that God had made this promise to his dad and he was going to carry it out through him. And if he drops the ball, it could be all the generations that, that suffer because of it. And he is carrying this torch for the first time. And he's trying to get things started. And to make matters worse, as we turn to Genesis 26, there's a famine in the land. So he's got all of this responsibility. He's got all these people depending upon him. And there's a famine. There's not been any rain. There's not been enough food. Uh, People are starving. People are moving away. People are trying to find water. It is a really, really tough season. Pick it up in chapter 26 of Genesis, verse 1. Now there was a famine in the land besides the previous famine that had occurred in the days of Abraham. So Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. Now I want you to picture this. Um, He's got all this responsibility, all these people looking to him every day. The cattle are dying off. The sheep are dying off. He's literally watching his wealth diminish on a daily basis. People are leaving, and there is no reason to stay. And he's looking at this. There's no no rain. That means there's not enough food. That means the livestock are dying. The people are, are, are fighting over what little bit of water that they can find. And people's lives are literally at stake. And nobody knows what to do. Nobody. And Isaac is in charge. Ever been there? I, I just think just... A few years back, some of you will remember this, 2008, stock market went like this, a housing crisis hit, everybody lost 40% of their house's value, everybody lost 50% of their life savings if it was in the stock market, everybody was losing their jobs, people were looking for somebody to blame or something to do, nobody knew what to do, companies were downsizing. A lot of us have been through some times like that, whether it's economic or maybe a health situation where you just went in because you weren't feeling quite right and the, and the test results came back and they were not what you expected to hear, not what you wanted to hear, not what you were ready to hear and now you're facing a real crisis and you're not sure you're gonna be here this time next year and you go through these seasons sometimes and nobody knows what to do. That's where Isaac was in Genesis 26. And he is wondering what to do. There's a famine. There's no water. People are starving. People are leaving. I should probably get out of here. He's in the land that God sent him to. 
He's where he's supposed to be, but where he's supposed to be, it's not happening the way it's supposed to happen. And he's got to be thinking, where should I go? Where can I take these people? I have to have responsibility for all of them. I got to make sure they have food. I got to make sure they have water. I got to make sure they're taken care of. I don't see how we can stay here. Maybe I should go down to Egypt. I remember my dad telling me that in his early days when there was a famine, he went down to Egypt because where the Nile is, there's always water. And he went there and he got through the famine. That's what my father did. He'd already gone as far as Gerar, the land of the Philistines. That's another place his father went during a famine. And it was when he was there in Gerar that the Lord spoke to him. Look at verse 2. The Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Stay in the land which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath which I swore to your father Abraham. I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. I will give your descendants all these lands, and by your descendants all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Because Abraham obeyed me and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac lived in Gerar. Does that sound familiar? We've seen this scene before with Abraham, haven't we? He, God, God comes to Abraham every time Abraham seems to get to a point where he is ready to throw his hands in the air, has no idea what to do, or has already done something stupid. And God comes to him, and what does he do? He does it every time, again and again and again. We saw it in Abraham's life. God comes to him and says, let me remind you of the promises I've made. Let me remind you, Abraham, I have a plan for your life, and the only thing you have to do is obey me. Only thing you have to do is trust me, and I'm going to carry out the plan that I have. And it's not just a plan for you. It's a plan for multiple generations. I'm going to bless you but I'm also gonna bless your descendants and through your descendants, I'm gonna bless the whole world. The Messiah is going to come through this line. This is God's blessing for the whole world. And so he reminded Abraham of this over and over and over and over again because let's face it, we are fickle. And when things get tough, we forget how good God is, don't we? We, we start to wonder, what happened to God? Why didn't, why didn't God do what he said he would do? Where is God? I've been praying, but my prayers are bouncing off the ceiling. I don't know what to do. I'm sitting here in this hospital waiting room crying, and I don't hear God's voice. I don't know what to do. And God has to come along and remind us sometimes and say, I am still the God I've always been. And the promises I made to you are promises I will keep. And so God did what he did all the time when Abraham got confused. He showed up, he reassured Isaac, and he reminded him of his promise. I love how God shows up and says, listen, Isaac, it's a famine. It's a famine. It's not the end of the world. I'm still the same God I've always been. My promises still hold true. Yes, it's a famine, but there is no need to panic because here's what you need to know in life, Isaac. Famines are going to come. Can somebody say amen to that? Right? There are times when life gets hard and you don't know why. And you can't explain it and you don't understand it and it just makes you want to cry. Sometimes it makes you cry. Life is like that. 
It's like that for all of us. Hey, Isaac, just realize that though you are going through a tough time, I haven't changed who I am. I am still the God that I have always been. Remember a couple of weeks we talked about this, this, this adage that I think we all as Christians need to live by. Never judge God in the light of your circumstances. Always judge your circumstances in the light of who God is. We have to remember who God is because hard days come. They do. And sometimes when things are hard, we just need to be reminded of who he is. He is who he's always been. Listen, I know some of you right now, right now, are in the middle of what seems like the hardest time you've ever been in. You, some of you right now are in a tunnel that you cannot see the end of, and I want you to know that even in the tunnel, our God is faithful. Even in the tunnel, our God is all-powerful. Even in the tunnel, our God loves you with an overwhelming love. Even in the tunnel, our God is all-knowing. Even in the tunnel, our God is sovereign. Even in the tunnel, our God is our source of supply. And even in the tunnel, our God not only will not, but cannot break his promises to us. We have to remember that. Because when you're in the tunnel, when you look around you, the only thing you know for sure exists is the tunnel walls. But there's a sky out there. There's birds singing somewhere, right? There's air to breathe out there somewhere, but you can't see it from in the tunnel. It doesn't change what the facts are. And God comes along and says, Abraham, I mean, Isaac, I know it's a problem. I know it's a famine. I know it's a hard time, but I want you to know I'm still God and I still supply all of your needs. The difference between a time of blessing and a time of trouble in our lives is not how much you need God. It's how aware you are of your need for God. During really hard times, we go, oh, if God doesn't bail me out, I'm dead. Guess what? When you got the promotion at work, that was still true then right? When you were feasting at your favorite restaurant, that was still true then. When you were celebrating the wedding anniversary or your child's graduation or whatever it was that got you so excited and you were so blessed and you thought how great my life is, you were just as dependent upon God then as you are when you're lying flat on your back in the hospital room. It's just that in the hospital room, we notice. I'm telling you, sometimes I think that as Christians in America... One of the hardest challenges we face is the ease and comfort with which God has blessed us. We have easy lives. We are comfortable. And we come to expect that that is the norm. But have you ever thought about the fact that the vast majority of the Christians in the world live way below the poverty line? And do you know why that is? It's because God hates them, right? No, obviously not. It's, it's in spite of the fact that God loves them, right? There are hard times, and sometimes we don't notice God in the good times. It's when it gets dark that the light seems the most obvious. So often when things are tough, our first thought is, why has God deserted me? Or maybe we think, you know, what have I done wrong to deserve this? And the answer might be nothing you haven't done anything wrong. It's a famine. Sometimes it happens. It's a recession. 
You're upset about how much money you lost in equity? Guess what? All your neighbors lost that equity too, right? We're all going through it. It's a hard time, and hard times come. And at times like that, our question shouldn't be why, it should be what? God, what would you have me do to be pleasing to you even during this time of famine? Because God is not surprised by our famines. God is not overwhelmed by our circumstances, right? God is not afraid of our situation. Our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he sits on the throne. So don't desert God in times of famine. He hasn't deserted you. Seek his face. Listen to his voice. Remember his promise. And keep doing the last thing he told you to do. God has a great track record with people who are in over their heads. <laughs> if you don't know that, you haven't read the Bible. He has an amazing track record with people who are in over their heads. And if you're struggling through a time of difficulty right now, don't assume it's because God is not blessing you. Why are we surprised when we hit major bumps in the road? Somehow some of us have gotten the idea that the Christian life is supposed to be about ease and comfort and health and wealth and prosperity. Where did we get that idea? Well, from the Bible. No, from bad Bible teachers. The Bible doesn't teach that health, wealth, and prosperity nonsense. The Bible teaches that God will be with you during times of famine and during times of feasting, and there will be both in your life. But God will always be God. We all say we want to follow Jesus, but we somehow expect God to give us a life better than the life he gave to Jesus. We deserve it. Let me give you a couple of quotes from Jesus. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. If, you, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must first take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus lived a perfect, sinless life. He never did anything to make the Father mad. And they crucified him. Friends, if you and I are going to follow Jesus we probably should put on our seatbelts because it's going to be a bumpy road. So Isaac was in a hard place, but God hadn't left him. So God came and reminded him that nothing had changed. God was still God. God was still on the throne. God was still working in his life. So Isaac finds himself in Gerar, the land of the Philistines, just like his dad once was. And watch what happens. This will blow your mind. Verse 7. When the men of the place asked about his wife, uh-oh. When the men of the place asked about his wife, he said, she is my sister. Are you kidding me right now? If you're, if you're just coming into this study of Genesis, this is not the first time we've seen this happen. Abraham did this twice that we know of and got in all kinds of trouble because of it, lying about his wife and saying, she's my sister. So what does his son do? He gets in the situation, the guys in the land go, hey, who's that girl with you? That's my sister. Really? She's my sister, for he was afraid to say my wife, thinking the men of this place might kill me on account of Rebecca, for she is beautiful. 
And the moral of the story is marry an ugly woman. <laughs> That's a joke. Don't, you don't have to marry. It's a joke. And it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through a window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife, Rebekah. Then Abimelech called Isaac and said, Behold, certainly she is your wife. How then did you say she is my sister? And Isaac said to him, Because I said I might die on account of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech charged all the people, saying, He who touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. Man, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Let's be fair, though, to Isaac. He's doing pretty well so far. He has not fallen into all the same traps that his father fell into. When Abraham's wife was barren, he took, a, he took a servant girl and slept with her, right? When Isaac's wife was barren, we saw this in chapter 25, barren for 20 years, first 20 years of their marriage, she's barren. And when Isaac's wife is barren, what does he do? Prays for his wife and God opens her womb. Check. When, when Abraham uh, ran into his first famine, what did he do? He went down to Egypt, which by the way, in the writings of Moses, Egypt becomes the symbol of running away from God and into the world, right? What did Abraham do? He ran to Egypt and got in all kinds of trouble because he was there. When this famine comes to Isaac, he starts thinking about running to Egypt, but instead decides to listen to God who said, stay in this land. This is the land I'm going to bless you in, right? As we keep reading Genesis, you're going to find out what happens when they eventually go down to Egypt. It doesn't work out well for them. So he's getting an A so far, but this time he messed up. This time he takes a shortcut. This time he told a lie. And it's pretty obvious by this point in our reading that it must have been a real threat in that society, right? It must have really been something you had to worry about that if you have a beautiful wife, somebody's gonna come along and kill you so they can get your wife. It must have been something that happened regularly because every time they went somewhere, they were telling this lie. And we learned also that... uh, Abraham and Sarah had decided at the beginning of their journey that wherever they went, they were going to tell this lie. So this must have been a real threat. And I can relate to him. And I'm thinking, man, I don't know what I would have done in that situation. I don't know if I would have had the courage to tell the truth. So, so I'm sure, though, that they get down there. People start asking questions. And he says, She's my sister. And can you imagine how loudly she rolled her eyes? Can you imagine how she looked at him? Women, have you ever noticed that sometimes your husbands just say stupid stuff? Well, congratulations, he's biblical. This is, this is what happens, right? He, he says, she's my sister, right? And Rebecca goes, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Because Rebecca had undoubtedly known the stories of what happened when Abraham did this every time they went and took her off and married her off to somebody. And so here's Rebecca going, oh my goodness. 
You know what, though? Abraham made these mistakes. Isaac made mistakes. If we keep reading, we're going to find Jacob makes mistakes. Joseph makes mistakes. Moses makes mistakes. Joshua makes mistakes. Elisha makes mistakes. And it keeps on going. Men of God put their foot in their mouth just like men of the world. And so Rebecca must have been shaking her head, but God revealed the truth soon enough. Look at verse 8 again. Uh, it came about when he had been there a long time that Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out through the window and saw, and behold, Isaac was caressing his wife. Now, obviously, he was not caressing his wife in the way that one might caress one's sister. You got it? Okay? This, this word, this Hebrew word that is translated caressing is a sexual word. Okay? It means he was doing with his wife what husbands do with their wives. And this guy saw this and said, what kind of Kentucky family is this? <laughs> right? <laughs> Sorry. God, I just thought somebody might be visiting from Kentucky today. Oh. If you're visiting from Kentucky, it was a joke. That's what we do in California. It's humor... We welcome you and your sister wives. Come on in. <laughs> I apologize to all my southern friends. Anyways, this guy looks out and goes, why is this guy? This can't be his sister. So he calls him in and goes, dude, tell me that is not your sister, right? And he finally confesses and says, yeah, I was afraid. And really, God just shows up and, and protects them again, just like he had with Abraham over and over and over again. And he ends up getting blessed, and they make a law that says, you can't touch this guy or his wife. And so they're allowed to stay there in the community. Now, verse 12. Now, Isaac um, sowed in that land. Now, remember, it's a famine, right? Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold, and the Lord blessed him. And the man became rich and continued to grow richer until he became very wealthy in the midst of a famine. For he had possessions of flocks and herds, a great household, so that the Philistines envied him. Now all the wells which his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham, his father, the Philistines stopped up by filling them with earth. Then Abimelech said to Isaac, go away from us, for you're too powerful for us. And Isaac departed from there and camped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. Man, you talk about ups and downs. He plants during a time of famine, and somehow he figured out the plot of land that must have been watered underneath or something, because somehow he has a hundredfold. Now, in the same year, it's unheard of. There's never a hundredfold result from your farming. You might hope to get a 30% increase in your crop. If you have a great year, you could get a 50% increase. This is a hundred times what he planted. There is no question in anyone's mind how he got this. It's because his 
God blessed him. Now he's in the land of the Philistines and they are watching while they are struggling and he is being blessed and they're realizing that he's becoming rich, he's becoming powerful and they come to him and say, we don't want you here. In fact, behind his back, they're going and filling up the wells that his father had dug that had been there for decades that belonged to him and they're filling them with earth and then finally the king comes to him and says, look dude, you just can't stay here. This is not going to go well. We're concerned because you're getting too wealthy, too powerful, too strong. So we look at these ups and downs and you say, well, then what should I expect from a journey of faith? What should I expect from a life of walking with God? Should I expect all kinds of blessings like a hundredfold crop? Or should I expect a famine? Should I expect them to fill my wells with water? What should I expect? Probably some of it all. Isaac had both blessings and trouble. It doesn't, you don't have to read your Bible long to find it elsewhere. Remember a guy named Job? Richest man in the world. And he lost everything in a day. Oh, and then by the end of the book, he got 10 times more what he had before. Sometimes it goes up and down. Paul had both. In the New Testament, Paul talks about his contentment because it didn't matter whether he was poor or whether he was rich, he was always content anyway, which is why he says in Philippians 4.13, I could do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I could be poor, I could be rich. It's fine because my contentment level is the same either way. So if you're gonna follow Jesus, are you gonna be poor or rich? Maybe both. The question is, is that going to determine your level of contentment? Is that going to determine your level of joy? Is that going to determine your level of peace? Is that going to determine your sense of success in life? Or is success defined as something entirely different? So Isaac gets richer and more powerful, and the Philistines start to fear that his clan is going to take over. They get jealous, they make things hard for him, and they finally kick him out. Verse 15. Now, all the wells, I already read that, 15 through 17. So things are going to get tough for Isaac and his family, no matter how hard he tries. He keeps running into trouble. Verse 18, then Isaac dug again the wells of water which had been dug in the days of his father Abraham, for the Philistines had stopped them up after the death of Abraham, and he gave them the same names which his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of flowing water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with the herdsmen of Isaac, saying, that water's ours. So he named the well Ezek uh, because he contended with him. Ezek means contentment, I mean uh, contention. Um, then they dug another well, and they quarreled over it. So he named the, el, the well Sitna. He moved away from there and dug another well, and they didn't quarrel over it. So he named it Rehoboth. For he said, at last the Lord has made room for us and we will be fruitful in the land. That word means roominess. Verse 23, then he went up from there to Beersheba and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of your father, Abraham. Do not fear for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant, Abraham. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. You see what's happening 
Isaac is just trying to find a way to get along and keep his people fed. He's just trying to work hard, do the right thing, and be productive. And whenever he tries, things get worse for him. No matter how hard he tries, he runs into trouble. But he's learning to trust God. So instead of fighting each time that they contend over the wells, he walks away. And they must be saying to him, Isaac, that's your land. You dug that well. I'm going to walk away. I'm going to walk away. And he walks away, and then he finds another great spot, digs another well, and they come and take that well from him too. They've been filling up the old wells. Now they're taking the new wells, and he just keeps walking away until he gets so far away that the only thing he could call that place is roominess, right? This is not moving from L.A. to the San Gabriel Valley. This is moving from L.A. out beyond Barstow. And there's a lot of room. And there, where nobody else wants to be, he finds water again. And in the middle of that long season of trials, what does God do? The same thing he did with Abraham, shows up yet again, says, hey, by the way, I'm still here. I'm still God. I still am going to keep my promises. I still love you. I'm still providing for you. You don't have to worry. Just trust in me. He reminds him of his promises. Verse 24 um, verse 24, sorry, last page. The Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I'm the God of your father Abraham. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bless you and multiply your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Why did God need to tell him he was with him? Because it didn't seem like he was. This is so important for us to recognize. Sometimes it doesn't seem like God is with us. But God tells us in his word, I will never leave you or forsake you. He is always with us. And look how Isaac responds. Verse 25 tells us, he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. Oh, church, when will we learn to be still and know that he is God? He can handle his job. He doesn't need us to do it for him. When will we stop trying to do things our own way and start to trust God to do what he has already promised he'll do? The only thing he has asked of us is to trust him and obey him. And he promises to do the rest. That's why I love this verse. Philippians chapter 4, verse 19 says, And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That is a promise that he makes in Philippians to every one of his followers who will continue to trust him by faith. I will supply all your needs. And yeah, but I don't want just some little meager. No, no, he says, no, I will supply your needs according to my riches and glory. How rich is God? That's God's promise to all who will trust him. And it may not be in the timing that you would prefer. It may not be in the ways that you would prefer. But if you refuse to falter in your faith, if you keep on trusting God through it all, he will use his trials to make you, as James says, perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. 
If you will trust him in those ways, he will, as Romans says, cause all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Our contentment doesn't depend upon our circumstances. Our contentment depends upon our God. He never changes. And he never fails to keep his promises. Sometimes he'll even use our lives as an example to a watching world. And that's why he's letting us go through some hard things because he wants a world to watch how he can provide when we trust him. Look at verse 26. When Abimelech, then Abimelech came to him from Gerar with his advisor Ahuzeth and Phicol, the commander of his army. Now, first of all, this is a big deal. He's already moved out to Barstow, okay? And Abimelech, the king, doesn't send a messenger. He comes himself and he brings his vice king, his number one advisor, and the commander of his armies. And the three of them, the three biggest names in Philistia, go all the way out to where he is in a place that can only be named Ruminus, and they find him out there. And when they find him, look what happens. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me since you hate me and uh, have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, let there now be an oath between us, even between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Who would have ever dreamed the king of the Philistines would say that? We've been watching you. We saw how you responded when our guys filled your wells up. We saw how you responded when our guys stole your water. We see how you have responded all along and it doesn't seem like there's anything we can do to stop you from being blessed. So we've had a meeting and we talked about this and we said, gosh, I wonder why he's so well off. And somebody said, maybe his God's real. And now we've come to believe that your God must be the true God and you are blessed of the Lord. And we don't want to be your enemies because that would make us enemies of the one true God. We want to be your friends. Let's make a covenant. And, and so it says, um, verse uh, uh, verse thir- 29, that you will do us no harm just as we have not touched you. Oh, really? <laughs> and have done to you nothing but good. Oh, Really? And have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord. Verse 30. And so Isaac prayed for them, and fire and brimstone came out of heaven and smit. No, that's not what it says. <laughs> it says, Then he made a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they arose early and exchanged oaths. Then Isaac sent them away, and they departed from him in peace. Now it came about on the same day that Isaac's servants came in and told him that the well which they had dug and said to him, we have found water. So he called it Sheba. Therefore, the name of the city is Beersheba to this day. My friends, when you walk with God by faith, 
You get to feast even in times of famine. That's our God. Verses 32 and 33 show us this season of blessing. Hey, we found another well. Wait a second, we're in the desert. There's no, it's a famine. Why do we keep finding wells and nobody else can? Because we're blessed of the Lord. But not completely. It's not completely a season of blessing. God has a way of reminding us of how much we need him. Look at the last two verses. Verse 34. When Esau, remember Esau, Jacob and Esau, Isaac's sons? When Esau was 40 years old, he married Judith, the daughter of Beeri, the Hittite, and Basemath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they brought grief to Isaac and Rebekah. Everything is going great, and then his son goes off and marries a couple of strippers. <laughs> and, and he's just like... And it says it brought grief to him and his wife. He goes off to the pagans, right? Remember what, what happened when they needed a wife for Isaac? They had to go all the way back, away from the people of Canaan, right? These were going to be their enemies. These were going to be the people they had to fight wars with. And he went to these pagan people and married two of these women and brought great distress to his parents. What a chapter. A series of ups and downs. Up, down, up, down, up. And then it ends with this thing. Whenever we start to think that we're okay, God humbles us by giving us children. <laughs> right, parents? Right? You, 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 you look at you, oh, what are you doing? What are you doing, you know? And then when they're five and they're doing something stupid, you can handle that because you're bigger than them. When they're 25, 35, 40, and they're out doing stupid stuff, oh my gosh, if I had a dollar for every conversation I've had with a weeping parent of an adult who's just saying, ah, oh, my daughter's just, I don't, my son just won't, it's hard. And, and God reminds us of how much we need to trust him. So this isn't about the text. Let me just give you my two cents worth. If you're a parent, get on your knees and don't get off. We need to be praying for our kids. These, this son, Esau, brought them nothing but grief. Ups and downs, ups and downs. Dickens would say it was the best of times, it was the worst of times. But through it all, God is faithful. And he will be faithful to you too. He's God. He can't be unfaithful, even if he wanted to and he doesn't want to. The only question remaining is not about your circumstances. The questions remaining are not about God. The question remaining is about us. What will you do in response to a God like this? Will you trust him? That's the question we have to face head on today. Are, are you willing to trust God? Are you willing to trust God in good times when you think, man, I have got it going on. It is working. I know how to do this. I finally got everything rolling. This is my time. Are you willing to trust God at those times? Or are you so busy being in charge that you forget about the God who gave you all that? Are you willing to trust him 
in hard times, when you can't explain what's happening and why it's going so badly, when, when trials come like waves, it's not just one, but as soon as you start to get up, another one comes. And as soon as you start to get up, another one comes. And if it's not financial, it's relational. If it's not relational, it's medical. And, and, and these kind of things come sometimes in waves. Will you trust him then? Because I know your circumstances are different then, but he's not different. He's the same God. I guarantee you that he will show himself strong in your life if you will put your trust in him. I hope you have a wonderful week. But if you don't, (laughs) I pray that you will experience the faithfulness of God anyway. And that you will be able to feast even during a time of famine. Let's stand together and we'll pray. Father, in this room, I know there are people that are just having great seasons in their lives right now, being blessed, seeing your hand move in our lives, uh, thankful for what you're doing, um, just, just riding the wave. And I know that there are people in this room right now who feel like they're just getting hit by waves. And so I, I pray that wherever we find ourselves, and it might switch by tomorrow, I pray that wherever we find ourselves, we would find you. God, teach us to look up. Teach us to lean on you and not our own understanding. Teach us to trust you, whether things are going well or whether things are going hard. Either way, Lord, we tend to be wayward. We tend to be distracted. We tend to be fearful and doubtful. Oh, God, won't you please help us to be faithful as you are faithful. And even when we're not, we praise you that you are. And we give you all the thanks today in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.